Back Alley Productions presents The Time Machine. Where does one begin a story he knows no one will believe? I, I suppose we must begin with the elementary. The town is Richmond in South England. The year is 1895 by the Gregorian calendar, and my name is Henry. I hope these facts will ground you, for you will need grounding in a way that a lost traveler needs a map. What I shall divulge will require your belief, as I will have to contradict a great many truths that are universally accepted. It is a truth you already know, but refuse to look upon. The truth that the time that you and I experience, this day to day, it is an illusion of perception. It is a brisk evening in October. I have taken the always crowded train from Charing Cross, clicking all the way down to the quiet town of Richmond, away from the madness of London. I walk through the autumn park towards the traveller's home. Yes, the traveller. I shall not divulge my friend's name here. He lived among the ancient houses along the Thames. St. Mary's Cathedral is about halfway between the train station and his house, hidden among the oaks. A splendor to behold. Though I haven't had any serious penance in some time, I've nonetheless replaced my cathisms with a meditation on the framework of the church. The stone buttresses of ancient people the colorful windows that give them hope in their dark ages, the figures along the outer wall. Yes, I have studied it for years now, and yet there is always some detail that surprises me. I suppose this is man's folly, to think one knows something fully. One secretive statue has me confounded the most, that of a duet. An angel clinging to a sundial that hovers above a mortal man. The man stretches out his arms to receive, or rather to take, the sundial. Slipping out of the angel's hands, it remains suspended, just short of the man's desperate reach. A simple sundial. But to man, it represents the most daunting of all God's creations. Itself, time itself slipping from the hands of God, the Master, and into the hands of mortal men to study, to puzzle upon, and to use and misuse as a blunt tool, a means toward man's various ends, those ends both cold and cruel and perhaps a little virtuous. But I don't want to sour the mood with depressing thoughts. Let me then tell you as I experienced it. It all started with dinner. Yes, I arrived promptly at the traveler's house for dinner that October evening. His house had become one of those notorious places, known for these little dinner parties where the smartest minds of Richmond congregated, inventors and psychologists, medical doctors and philosophers, to drink, to think, and to, well, you can imagine how quickly these cordial gatherings inevitably fall into the fiercest debates. Pipes are smoked, wine is shared, and the traveller is proposing a recondite topic with us. <laughs> His eyes shone with the fiercest curiosity. He was discussing something new, something revolutionary. He put it to us in this way. Pay close attention. 
In order to share my discovery in earnest, I shall have to contradict several natural laws that are at present universally accepted as truth. Well, that's rather a small thing to accept after dinner. Is that what the missus says to you after her nightcap, Mr. Philby? <laughs> Cheeky. So much for a civil evening. You know, if you had taken a wife by now, Henry, then you would know that civility, like romance and war, and all grand ventures, are long dead. Alas, the days of Antony and Cleopatra are as extinct as the dodo bird. Come on with it then, lad. What contradictions? Well, for beginners, the very mathematics that we have all been taught are false. That's just the beginning, too. Oh, is that all? I do not mean to ask you to accept anything without reasonable grounds, gentlemen. But rather than diving headlong into the ocean of paradoxes, perhaps we should start somewhere more familiar. What do you all know about the fourth dimension? Time? What are you on about? It is simply this. Our universe, as we perceive it, is made up of three fundamental dimensions. Length, width, and height. Three points that create the fabric of our reality. The first dimension is represented on this board as a single point. The second dimension is a line. And the third creates space. Mercy! We've been tricked into a remediation. More like a lecture by force. You're hardly here by force, Mr. Philby. Go on, lad. What we call length, width, and height each refer to the three planes of space, each at right angles to the others. An x-axis, a y-axis, and a z-axis. But Newton posits something that I've been turning over in my head. When we discuss space, we are asking the fundamental question, where? When I ask you, Henry, where is Notre Dame Cathedral, you would say... Why, in Paris, of course. You may as well say the refuse bucket, if you ask me. <laughs> now, Rogers, when I ask, where are you, you would say... In a stupor in your parlor. Good God, lad. I'm on your side, unlike our Mr. Philby. But even I have to admit that this is all a bit elementary. Ah, but elementary is often where one must revisit when the entire system proves itself to be false. Just as a lost man in London must retrace his elementary steps to find out exactly where he went wrong, even to the very beginning if he must. When we ask where something is, what we mean is where is something in relationship to something else. Aristotle was the first to conclude that the place of a thing is based not on the thing itself, but on what is around that thing. That the place of a thing is not the thing itself? A place cannot be itself. The words Notre Dame are nonsense without Paris. Without reference to Paris, the best anyone could come up with is Notre Dame is located at Notre Dame, which is absurd. The loo isn't in the loo. The loo is down the hall to the right. Hmm, I see your point. I don't, but good to know about the loo. Aristotle's point is that a place isn't an absolute statement. A place is relative, apparent. And yet, Newton proposes the opposite of Aristotle. Newton proposes an absolute where, not a relative where that can only make sense in relationship to that which surrounds itself. How? The language of mathematics. True mathematical space. 
measured not by the placement of things in relationship to other things, but by kilometers, inches, grams, liters, and all that business. And in such a case, such mathematical space could exist when nothing exists. There, I object. There is no such thing as true empty space in the Newtonian sense. An empty glass has empty space, you old rat bag. An empty glass has air, dimwit. But air isn't much more than nothing, is it? Not much more than nothing is still something. Every glass is full of either water or air. Or wine. You understand my point? I do. Though I never took you for a glass-full person. <laughs> Blasted all, space cannot exist where nothing exists by its very definition. You're wrong. According to Newton, it can, because the calculations for it exist. But now, herein lies the rub, gentlemen. What I've told you to be true about the three dimensions of space, by logical extension, must also then be true about the fourth dimension. About time? Go on. We think of time as what? The division of moments, the seconds on a clock. Well, yes, uh, time is simply is simply well, the measurement of change, yes. I believe most in academia would support that definition. Then suppose there exists a place where nothing changes. Nothing grows. Nothing becomes anything. Everything remains the same. Eternity. That's one word for it, I suppose. If time is, by your definition, Henry the measurement of change, and yet there exists a place where nothing changes. Is time, then, non-existent in such a place? Or does it still exist? If it exists in a place where nothing changes, then what is it? If time is not measuring change, then what is it measuring? Ah, uh, I'm falling off, lad. But such a timeless place doesn't actually exist in the real world. There's not some magic drawer or basement where nothing changes for all eternity. This is nonsense. Is it? When we discuss space, we ask where, and when we discuss time, we ask... When? Precisely. When is dinner? Seven o'clock. When is Parliament meeting? The third Wednesday of the month. If they're not too busy fondling in each other's pockets. And yet we have already shown that with where there must exist a space independent of things for Newton's calculations to be believed. By logical extension, the same exists for when. The seconds of a clock do not calculate the change of the world, but rather an absolute mathematical time that tick, tick, ticks away. Independent of things that move, of things that change. Something that predates dawn. It will outlive us all. This is all just theory and fluff. Oh, don't be sour, Mr. Philby. It's unbecoming. I'm not being sour. I'm being rational. It's an absurd fact that any real object must exist in all four dimensions. Length, width, height, and duration. You, Rogers, our host, myself, we're all sitting here in this parlor room, a glass of red wine in hand, at coming up towards midnight on October the 23rd, 1895, in Richmond, England. This is observable. Yes, and the sun spins while the earth stays still. This, too, is observable. 
That's not the same thing at all. Our a priori understanding of time is an illusion, Mr. Philby. A trick of the brain. What's more, there is a fallacy in our distinction between space and time, as though they are separate strata. We separate them because, as it happens, our awareness perceives them as separate. To experience space is one thing, to experience the passage of time another. Just as we perceive the sun to rise and fall, when in reality, it remains a fixed object in the center of our solar system. And there is nothing man questions less than his own perception, his own prejudices and self-assurances. If we ever did question ourselves, we'd recognize the inherent evil of all private property. Now you've done it. You've lulled us in with a lecture and forced your manifesto on us as dessert. Here comes the political rail car into the terminal. Right on schedule. Surely you can envision a better world than 1895, Mr. Philby. I am actually quite a proud Londoner. Oh, you're proud. So, in your approximation, Mr. Philby, this, all this, is the pinnacle of mankind. We do well. It's just how we live. Yes, rampant poverty, corruption, war, disease. Yes, yes, let us maintain the status quo, shall we? Like good, proud Londoners. Perhaps your father never instructed you as mine did. We must make the best of things. Yes, we must muddle through, mustn't we? Muddle, muddle, muddle through the mud. How dull. How dreadful. How proud. Oh, Lord. Now he's on a tear. No revolutions tonight, lad. You really do think that you're the smartest man in the room, don't you? You truly believe in this social revolution. In this transvaluation. I have never pushed for a social revolution. Quite simply put, Mr. Philby, it is a matter of personal revolution. One must heed the moral calling to separate oneself with one's own surplus for the sake of the community. Personal in virtue and social in effect. So the rich man is immoral if he stores up his wealth for himself or his kin? Yes, he is evil. Just as the poet who buries their work or the musician who hides their song from the greater good. You're absurd. If a man has no claim to what he's earned with his own two hands, then he has no claim to anything. Who are you to question everything? Who are you to call on personal revolution? Maybe it's time for you to muddle on home, Mr. Philby. Change? Change can be aspired to. We can all agree on that, yes? But change is slow. Comets do, do not collide with the surface of the world on any given day. And in the same way, men are slow to change. If change is slow, then we ought to speed it up. And therein lies the truth of my discovery. What? A discovery? I have a secret, gentlemen. A machine. <laughs> a machine? What machine? A time machine. Are you having us on? Is this some sort of a joke? Man once conquered the law of gravity using the tool of hot air. And in a similar way, I mean to conquer the law of time using the tool of electromagnetism. Well, um, good night, lad. Uh, that's all very fascinating, but I'm drunk and tired. Yes, a very cheeky joke. It's just like the ghost from last Christmas, isn't it? It was a very convincing ghost. Well, you've had your fun. But it's too late for this kind of nonsense. Time machine. 
<laughs> Good night, Henry. Why are you smiling like that? No one believes me. Not even you. About this machine? <laughs> of course not. <laughs> then it will be all the more satisfying when I'm proven right. None of us believed him about this time machine. We all concluded it was another one of his jokes. And after a few weeks, the topic seemed to vanish behind us. Mostly, we busied ourselves in our own ways. But finally, later that fall, I received a mysterious telegram from my friend. He asked me to come to his house and to come alone. Hello? Anyone home? Hello? Hello, good man. What brings you hither, thither, hence, or whence? Piggity, piggity, and all that rubbish. Is that you, my boy? Are you okay? Up in a minute. Very long minute. <laughs> what are you up to? What is the date? November 12, Wednesday. No, what is the date? I've just said... The full, exhaustive date! My good man. I don't quite understand. The year. What year? 1895, naturally. What are you raving about? <laughs> well, of course it is. Why shouldn't it be 1895? Should I call someone for you? Call anyone you like. Do you have phones in this time? Of course you do. Are you all right? I plunged, Henry. Plunged? What does that mean? Plunge. Head first into the dark. Can you sit down? If you insist. Standing, sitting, what difference does it make? This room feels alien to me. Like a forgotten memory. It's your parlor, sir. My parlor? Says who? Well, you own it. Huh. Do I? Well, I suppose there's some paper and some drawer at some law office. All to that effect, isn't there? What has happened? Why are you acting like this? It is a bit mad. Oh, don't be modest, Henry. Call me a lunatic if you want. Well, you weren't a lunatic yesterday, so it bears to reason that you aren't one today. Man is an unnatural animal, Henry. We are the rebellious child of nature. We rebel and rebel and rebel again. So certain of our empire over the world. The past is the beginning of the beginning, and all that is and has been but the twilight of dawn. What is that? It's a passage I read somewhere. You've been drinking. I have. Care to join? I don't drink. Pity. Is there more wine? I don't think that's entirely in your best interest. I don't think you have any point of reference for what is or is not in my best interest. Now get me some wine, or I shall throw over every bookshelf in this house until I get some. Get me something. I don't know where your wine is kept, sir. 
Sorry. I've been a bit lost. Alone. I never thought I'd find my way back. What has happened to you, my friend? 1895. Why not? Perhaps the final years of goodness. There will be a global war soon, Henry. Thousands of our countrymen will die in the mud, facing the horror of war. Germany will start it. Not that that should surprise us. But what does surprise me is... No one will learn from it. We shall fight on the beaches. So naturally, there will be another war a few decades later. Germany again. That's to say nothing of the 21st century. Poverty, disease, overpopulation, violence, crusades, the likes of which we can't even imagine. And the unfettered evils of industry and private ownership. And beyond that, after cycles of rising and falling, our own desolation, aeons of silence. Surely, surely you're above this, dear friend. What? This is not in good taste. Here I am, worrying about you, over a joke. Oh, I'm sorry the inevitable extinguishment of mankind isn't to your palate. You're still not on about that blasted time machine of yours, are you? Yes, you're very clever. Very good performance. Bravo! Parfait! Excellente! I can't argue tonight. I don't mind talking, but I can't argue. You either believe me, or you can go jump in the lake of fire for all I care. It's all the same to me. My conclusion, that this was all games and theatrics, passed with every second. He was too convinced of something. He had the kind of conviction you cannot perform easily. I could only deduce one of two things. My friend was truly stark, raving mad, or he was telling something akin to the truth. In either scenario, it dawned on me that the best way to settle his spirit, whether madman or prophet, was to listen. Then talk. Tell me what has happened to you. Most of it will sound like lying. So be it. I'll still listen. We last saw each other when? Several weeks ago, at one of your dinners. Who was there? Myself, you, Rogers, and Mr. Philby. Ah, yes, I recall. Mr. Philby was in quite a laconic mood. As is his usual temperament. He told me that I'd turn the natural order on its head. He was right. <laughs> Let's not let him know that. He'll never let us live it down. But you talk as if all this is some, some distant memory. This was just a few weeks ago. For me, it has been much longer, my friend. I slipped away into the uncharted abyss of eternity itself, the very end of time. At first I moved in hours and could hardly detect the change. Then after one experiment, day turned to night. Then I moved in incremental weeks, but this was not all that exciting. Then I got bold. I thought, let's have an adventure, shall we? 
So I took five-year intervals into the future. It seemed the right number. But then that quite didn't satisfy either. So I began to move in intervals of ten, then twenty. Then, moving into the future like a, like a tourist on holiday, I zipped through the winds of time like Shivkar Talpay. I moved through epics like a tourist moving through a museum. I saw terrible things. What did you see? Advances beyond what we've even conceived of either in the laboratory or the library. Boggles the mind. Every wish fulfilled. Every nightmare made real. It was all so strange, Henry. I drew what felt like my final breath and pulled the lever of my machine with both hands. Everything was hazy, dark. I pressed the lever further, and the sun went out like a candle. It must have felt like shooting to the moon. I cannot convey the sensation. It is excessively unpleasant like a helpless headlong motion, as if at any moment you will smash into something irreparable. Then what? I put the lever to the most extreme position. The sky became a luminous color such as early twilight, the sun an arc of fire across the sky. Night and day merged as one, and there was a flicker, and my entire laboratory vanished. I saw the River Thames recede. Remarkable. I saw the secession of empires and cities flown by in a second, Henry. Up, then destroyed. Either by age or calamity, I could not tell at my speed. Each time higher, each time blown away like dust. Did no one ever build on the land where you stood? If they did, my velocity through time was such that it scarcely mattered. But then, the building and rebuilding stopped. There was a long period of nothing, terribly long. A mist arose. I began to worry that I would blow myself up into all possible dimensions, which seemed unpleasant. I knew this was a risk when I turned the lever, of course, but before the start, that all seemed so adventurous. The risks man must take for science. But when faced with reality, I was less cheerful. A strange fear gripped me. Like the influence of some drug. I told myself I can never stop now. That I was to go to the end of time itself, or lost into infinity. But then, with all forthwith, I lugged over the lever and flung headlong through the air. And that, good man, was where I arrived. To the year 802,701. Hello? There was thunder and hailstones. I was stunned and caught in the eye of a storm. The flowers I noticed immediately. Deep mauve and purple. Larger than any flower I'd ever seen. And stronger than the hailstones. The storm passed. And before me stood a colossal figure. Carved apparently in some white stone in a deep sort of bronze. Something like a winged sphinx, but such that the wings seemed to hover. It simply terrified me. I felt a strange sort of amnesia wash over me, as if this were unreal, happening as a, as a dream happens. I suppose I was in a trance. 
I felt my mind go into a frenzy of fear, a desperate madness. I felt an urgent need to undo what I'd done. That feeling has never truly left me, Henry. Even in this room, it is as if that time were all a dream. But while there, I felt as if all of this were the dream. And I... I... What was the Sphinx? And for that matter, what has become of mankind? Changed. Radically. When the sun broke through and the storm passed, I heard voices approach me. And then I saw them. The Eloi. The what? The Eloi. That was what they called themselves. The man of the future. Beautiful gracious creatures that had thrown off the vanity that we all find so distasteful with ourselves. Frail like porcelain, they wore incandescent robes like starlight, nimble and quick-footed. They appeared to me in the hundreds, emerging from the holes and crooks of massive trees, oaks that had grown for billions of aeons. Were you not? Were you not terrified of them? Not at all. One of them came up to me, A woman, by all appearances, though the distinction of gender seemed archaic at this point in human evolution. See ya, Ethne? Despite our differences in biology, there was still some shared ancestry, some deeper understanding. This was my descendant, and I its grandfather. There was something so human in that moment, dear Henry, that all fear vanished from I and them. A group of the little ones conjured around me, laughter, teasing, and amazement. Then one addressed me. I did my best to explain who I was, to bridge our barrier of language. Let's see, uh, sun. That is the sun. Sun. There was really no way not to patronize them. Yes, and me. I am a time man. I am a man of time. I am a man. No, 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 no. I'm a man. No, no, I am a man. 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 Then it pointed to itself, and there was a breakthrough. Aloy. Aloy! Eloy! Your Eloy! Aloy! Yes! I am man, and you are Eloy! Aloy! Thunder! Boom! (laughs) Boom! Yes! Thunder! Boom! They seem to revere me. They brought me flowers, and chanted to me laughing, and... And what? Playing. Are you all right? They were such innocent creatures, you see. I had assumed that the destiny of man was intellectual posterity. I came to realize that it was irresistible merriment. What did they do? They led me fearlessly to their village, built into the billion-year-old trees, hidden behind the tall spikes of strange white flowers. 
I deserted the time machine, making sure to take the keylock with me. You just... left it? I entered a strange, dreamlike euphoria. I lost all reason, driven by passion instead. Everywhere on the surface of the earth were pastel cushions, in hideaways of the base of the trees, in the fields and the forests. The Eloi had built large, open structures of stone, dining halls and meeting halls. There was no class among them, no gender, no hierarchy to speak of. They ate bizarre and delicious fruits. Horses, dogs, sheep, cattle had all followed the ichthyosaurs into extinction, so their diet seemed entirely based on fruit. At first, my efforts to talk to them were met with a stare of surprise or inextinguishable laughter. But presently, a fair-haired stranger seemed to grasp my intention to communicate and repeated a name. Weena. Weena. <laughs> that was her name. Also, she seemed to be a her, at least by our modern strata. She looked like a figurine of Dresden, China. Her wide-eyed face tilted slightly up to look at mine. We exchanged nouns and verbs. She seemed to grasp my language far quicker, startingly quicker, than I could grasp hers. She taught me the word for eat, and the word for sleep, and the word for... And the word for what? Well, um, the Eloi were quite playful. They spent their time chasing each other, rearing their children in make-believe games, eating fruit, communally bathing in the river, chasing each other about the fields, and, uh... Well, making love, Henry, quite often. I, I see. Well, well that is, uh, it is... It is deeply troubling. There seemed to be no immorality, no shame. They had moved beyond institutions and rules. There was no government, no militant necessities of marriage. They had done away with the sexes. They found themselves like children. They ate when they were hungry, played silly games with their offspring, slept lazily most of the day, and procreated whenever it suited them. How oh, monstrous. So the socialists will win in the end? Is that what you're telling me? It might shock you. But who are we to judge? I need not remind you that in the year of 802,701, you weren't just a skeleton, but dust, whose atoms had been scattered over aeons. Sir... I'm sorry, but it shouldn't offend. We all end up that way. All dust. You sound as if you permit the hedonism. Not exactly. I feel a strong sort of protection over them as their ancestor. Especially Weena, who, when she was bored with other things, often took me by the hand to show me her world, teach me her words... I cannot quite place how often I spent with them. It all felt like a dream. Weeks passed without notice. I began learning words, and she seemed to have some capacity for memorization far beyond our own. Weena would introduce me to others, and they would laugh at my terrible mispronunciations, and became almost instantly bored of me. They all did. And, to my astonishment, they seemed unthreatened by me. And while the others became bored with me, Weena continued to ask for more words. 
I showed her the picture of us at the British Museum, and she finally seemed to comprehend where I came from. Time machine. That's right. That. This. This is my coat. We wore significantly more clothing in the past. What does a coat do? It keeps you warm, and it has pockets. Pockets? Well, now that's my personal space, Weena. What are these? Those matches. Here, let me show you. Oh, again. Um. Okay. Match. Match. Show again. Show time, man. Show match. I only have two left. I really should show it. Right. Match. 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 Another. I only have one left. Stop it, Weena. Give him my coat back. That's a photograph. Photograph.、Uh, that's mine. You. Yes, that's me. In London, my home. London. London. This. That. Uh. That's just a、uh, a street. This. That's a building, parliament, government. It's it's hard to explain, and apparently non-existent now. What is this? Um, that uh, that's a horse. Weena, lo wei o lo lier le flay salafiu. What did he say? Can't say. Tell me. <laughs> Eloy say. Time man is so like a horse. Horse man. Horse man. <laughs> oh, lovely. Thank you. Come with me. I show you. She took me to a hillside over the alien world, and pointed to the photo, then down to a spot on the surface. What is it? London. And I finally realized, I never left my home. It was right before my eyes. I could see everything: the Thames, reshaped from millions of years of attrition; the Great Sphinx, and a palace that appeared to be made of green porcelain near the mountains. Weena pointed to various landmarks and explained them to me in her language. And from that moment on, she wouldn't leave me. At first, I thought it was curiosity, but then. She would hold on to me and fall asleep by my side. She had an affection for me that I did not understand. If I left her side, she would become depressed until she could find me again. And she was beautiful, of course. But I knew that whatever the classification of our bond—platonic, manic, philatelic, pragmatic—was destined to be broken when I returned home. It was so instant the connection between us. I was startled. There was no courting, no friendship, no measurement of worth. She simply picked me out, and that was that. It was the oddest thing, Henry. Truly, she would take long naps with her head pillowed in my arms, cling on me and smile, laugh at every mispronounced word. And when I when I when I gazed at them all, I saw among them the same habits. Between couples and grouplings, and in the end, her odd affection 
and for that matter my affection for them all, triumphed against my reason, and I came to love them, the slumbering multitudes. My dear man. When I arrived, Henry, I thought I had come to humanity at its way. I couldn't imagine how anyone was keeping up with anything until I realized there wasn't anything to keep up with. If you saw them, you'd understand. It was a triumph to them. No toil, no struggle, no social ladder, no bombs, no guns, no hardship. Simple freedom. Enough for everyone. No pleasure unknown. A loyalty to each other that no nation has ever known. Restraint, patience, and mutual decision. No imminent danger. So I hypothesized that this was paradise at last. But as with all my other theories, dear Henry, it sounded plausible, and it was mostly wrong, for this world was not fearless. What does that mean? What's he saying? Human! What is it, Weena? Time man! Go! Run! She kept hiding her face like a child's game, but the fear on her was unrelenting. The Eloi scattered into hiding places I had never seen, and it seemed instantly that all the trap doors that had been hiding in plain sight vanished and I saw that some of the Eloi had been left behind, either by design or neglect. Weena was among them. What is it, Weena? What is wrong? River. We must run to the river to hide. Hide? Hide from what? They say that we must leave you. What's out there? What is that howling sound? Morlock. Run! I ran to the clearing before the white sphinx, but in that moment I realized a greater horror than the ghosts in the woods. The time machine was gone. It took no great measure of inference to conclude that my machine was taken inside the sphinx. For all my intellect, I knew that in that dark moment that I had been outmastered by this world. I realized I was not alone. They moved among them. Morlock, she called them. But they were like monsters, where the Eloi seemed to have a trace of man in them. These Morlocks had none. They seemed to live underground like ants in a hill. I saw a few emerge from trapdoors hidden under the grass, and others from caves in the mountains. They were grey like smoke, and had featureless faces with red eyes. Tall and hairless, except with black flaxen spines of hair that went from the head down the base of the spine. And, and sharp teeth and claws. It, it was an elongated thing, sickly and pale, but not in the way of the Eloi. Like, like, a, like a grey ghost of a thing. Like an, an overgrown dog. They seemed to be smelling, but my scent confused them. I remained unseen, and they seemed scattered. Then, they caught the scent of the young Eloi child. 
before I could do anything, they descended on it, grasping the fragile thing in its claw and whisking it away like a husk of corn. It screamed and was silenced in the dark, and I understood Weena's fear. The child had been devoured. Then, at that moment, one of them found me. It rose up on its hind legs and gave out a scream that shut off my blood. Something possessed me. Something that seemed to know what to do when facing a monster. A spirit of pure survival. I found my final match desperately and lit it. And the monster gave out a panicked scream. Then ran away. I thought it was over when I ran to find Weena. The Eloy were coming back to the Green Palace now, a desperate attempt at escape. But the Morlock seized on them. Then I came to the Thames and I saw Weena splashing in the moonlight, the main current pulling her swiftly, too strong for her to swim. I spoke to the other Eloy, who protested as if they couldn't possibly jump in after her. No one made the slightest attempt to rescue her. I threw off my clothes, jumped in, and swam after her. I miscalculated the river's strength and nearly drowned myself. But I managed to find my bearings. I pulled her out, and we laid together on the beach in the dark, listening to the horrifying sounds of the moonlit hut. Weena walked me back to the camp. We made our way to the palace of green porcelain. Entered its dark chambers shut ourselves inside, and stayed through the night. I awoke. Weena was wrapped around me. I caressed her, but I knew, after what had happened the night before, that I had to find my time machine and return home. In that dreamlike world, I had abandoned all scientific reason. I had let my passions overcome me. I came to see the Eloy with such compassion, and the Morlocks with such disgust. I had forgotten my place as an anthropologist and scientist. I knew I couldn't continue down this path. So I woke Weena, and we ate silently on fruit. Despite the horror, she seemed like herself, laughing and joking, annoyed that I wouldn't partake with her games. Why are you mad? How can you stand it? Stand what? I'm not standing. I'm sitting. I'm eating. Those things massacred your people last night like cattle. They ate a child in front of my very eyes. Shh! Don't talk. Eat instead. Morlocks. That's what you call them. Just eat. What are those? My pockets. We know we've talked about them before. We need to talk about the Morlocks. They have my machine. How do I get my machine back? Do you know? Maybe it's lost forever. That's unacceptable. What are you reading? She looked overhead at a large sign that hung above us. She had mastered the English language by then, but it still surprised me when she read. What is science? This must be a museum of sort. What does it mean? Surely your people have some form of it. I do not know science. I've never heard of it. Of course you have science. You acquired knowledge of the Morlocks. You've built homes. All of this is science, you see. 
I do not see. How do I explain? It's a French word for... It means knowledge with certainty. It is the knowledge of one's understanding of the world through observation and testing. It's the only way to know anything, really. How do you know which fruits to eat? We just know. We are told. But how do you identify if it is something good for you? I pick the right fruit. This is clear. I don't understand what you're saying. You pick the right ones because you have acquired the certain knowledge of the right ones. The science of the right ones. You know what they look like, what they smell like. You, you know their sweetness and texture by heart. And you are careful to make sure what you eat isn't something similar, something that looks like a healthy fruit, but is in fact a poisonous one. That, in a nutshell, is science. It's the map that we use every day. Without it, you might forget what is and what is not okay to eat. And, well, if that were the case, there wouldn't be many Eloy for very long. This is as clear as the sky. Where I come from, Lena, science is how we learn everything. It's how we created the matches I showed you. By observing how uh, friction against a head of sulfur creates a chemical reaction producing a flame. It's how we learn to communicate through a transmitter and a receiver. It's how I built my machine. For what is there without science? I do not know. What is there without science? Blindness. Stumbling in the darkness of the universe without a prayer. But in science, there is light, Weena. Experiments, testing, retesting, rigorous skepticism of every possible assumption. Then, failure. Lots of failure. And, and logic and deduction, reason, then necessary recognition of your own cognitive biases. These fallacies in our flawed minds, dissonances and false assumptions that are so deeply hardwired by our own internal programming that you can hardly tell them apart from the truth. The greatest of which is believing you are absolutely right all of the time. And then, of course, the refinement of your experiments and assumptions until a suitable conclusion can be determined. That's how we get to the truth. The damn thing is, the truth is always an approximation until a better understanding comes along. For now, we see through a mirror darkly, but with enough truth in his arsenal, a man can take action, can build, can grow, can set a course. That is what it is to be a scientist. This is the cornerstone of all human knowledge. This is the wellspring of human progress. Or, or so I thought. You're sad? I'm a rationalist. Of course I'm sad. I'm not sad. You're not. After last night. I have the sun and the fruit and you. Those monsters killed your people. Stop! You do not speak. I'll speak. You sit and tell me about science and matches and pockets. And I listen because I do not know. But I know Morlock. I see Morlock. I have hidden from Morlock since I was a child. Not you. So I will not listen to you about the Morlock, about what you do not know. I know that they're still out there. 
I know they have my machine. I choose not to think of the Morlock. You should do the same. There is nothing we can do. I choose instead to think of fruit and sun and Eloy and grass and warm things. And you, this is just the way of things. I thought your kind was a paradise, but you throw your own into the maw of death without any compassion or care. When you were drowning in that river, none of your kind even raised a finger to save you. Only me. For all our greed and vanity, the man of 1895 is still willing to rush into fire to save their own. How can you not see it? The survival of all depends on the survival of one. And how stupid was I to fall in love with this illusion? You're not humans. You're... There was silence, and I could see Weena's eyes filled with tears. She did not fully understand my rantings, but she knew the heart of my anger. She stood there like a wounded child. So I said nothing more of the Morlocks, and she retreated into herself. After a while, I began to silently explore the palace interior. My conclusion was right. It was an ancient museum that had long been abandoned to the ages. White globes hung from the ceiling at intervals, many of them cracked and smashed. That suggests that originally the place had been artificially lit. But what of the poor girl? She sulked, but eventually she found me again, and we walked together in silence. We explored vast galleries filled with minerals. Most I could identify. Amethysts, spinels, obsidians... Then there were aisles of huge machines, some I couldn't comprehend. Like the automobile? Dear man, like the rocket. Man had long abandoned paved roads for charters in space. Spectacular. It dizzies the mind. Precisely. All that information on the mind, all at once, left me in a strange state of vertigo. There were so many possibilities, Henry. So many questions... I couldn't even categorize or stratify my curiosity. But where had mankind gone? How far had we reached? The moon? Further? Much further, I believe. Astonishing. But then, why had we fallen? Or did we leave this planet the way a child leaves the nursery? Perhaps it wasn't the twilight of mankind. Perhaps we were out among the stars at last. I do not share your optimism, my friend. I saw a great deal of photography, war, and chaos. Our final pages were not of achievement, but finality. And I suspect that the Eloy and the Morlock were all that was left. I tried to make sense of it all, but the more I looked at these images and models, the more dreamlike it all became. It felt imaginary, alien. But then I realized it was I that was the alien. These complex histories were not for my simple eyes. I did not belong here. And if I stayed much longer, I might go mad. So I had but one choice. I had to find my machine. And I had to leave Weena. Undo what I had done. Are you going home now? Yes. I can't stay here, Weena. My adventure into the future was an arrogant mistake. 
can't expect you to understand. She left my side for a time, and I thought I had broken her heart. Then I heard her steps return in the dark, and she brought me a small, incandescent flower from one of the other halls. For you. What are these? A flower. It's special. For you, so you know it wasn't a dream. I took it as a sign of her approval. She knew as I knew that I could no longer stay. So I set about my plan to recover my time machine and go home. You know that great pause that comes upon things before dusk? Even the breeze stops in the trees. The evening stiffens with expectation. The sky was clear, remote, and empty, save for a a few horizontal bars far down in the sunset. Well, that night, the expectation took the color of my fears. In that darkling calm, my senses seemed preternaturally sharpened. I fancied I could even feel the hollowness of the ground beneath my feet. Could indeed almost see through it. Staring at the Morlocks on their anthill going hither and thither, and waiting for the dark. In my excitement, I fancied that they would receive my invasion of their burrows as a declaration of war. And why had they taken my machine? I went eagerly to every unbroken case in the museum, and at last, in one of the really airtight cases, I found a small mechanical torch and a rod of iron. Very eagerly, I tried the torch, pressing one button and squeezing another. To my surprise, it ignited a controlled flame at the tip of the rod, much stronger and fiercer than my matches. I turned to Weena. Dance. Why? For now, we have the means to fight our enemy. I waited for dust to settle into a star-filled night. The moon was full, and I could survey the land towards the white sphinx where my machine had been stolen. I waited for Weena to fall asleep, and, assuring she was safe, I set out alone. A James Wolf without an army, against a formidable adversary that I could hardly have time to study. The facts were these. They were brutish, violent, stronger than me. They had my machine, and I had a flame that they feared. No Morlocks had approached me at first. I had seen none upon the hills. There were even moments where I found my fear unreasonable. I had the idea of crafting a crude battering ram, grazing the bronze entrance under the white sphinx. If I could enter those doors with a blaze of light, I could ward off my enemy, get my machine, and vanish like a ghost. As I moved through that dark forest, I finally heard them hunting in the darkness. At first I thought there must be a stray Eloy about, and felt a deep sense of pity. Then I came to realize I was the one being hunted. I gripped my rod of iron in one hand and my mechanical torch in another. Suddenly there were three Morlocks near me, their red eyes moving between trees, one there, then gone, another behind me, then gone, howling, screaming, and even laughing. I I, I ignited the torch, and at once they scattered in horror, but only as long as the flame endured. Once it expired, the hunt resumed, so I ignited it again and again, but I began to wane each time. I realized the flame was not unlimited. Deeply hopeless. The little brutes were close upon me. One touched me. I made a sweeping blow in the dark, then another had come upon me. Then another. Then I simply had to fight. They did not anticipate how committed I was to my cause. They had become accustomed to the non-fighting Eloy. Fear and intimidation only brought forth an hitherto unknown strength of resolve. I became a fighter in a moment. And soon, a small group of Morlocks fled from me. 
That was when I came to a most unexpected thing. As I approached the pedestal of the Sphinx, I found the bronze valves were open. Within was a small apartment, and on a raised place in the corner of this was the time machine. I had the key lock in my pocket. So here, after all my elaborate preparations for the siege of the White Sphinx, was a meek surrender. But as I approached, I could hear the merciless laughter around me. Or Morlocks, I thought. I knew this was a trap, but I could also make it to my machine and vanish like a Dickens ghost at the stroke of midnight, leaving the Morlocks baffled and confused. But I overlooked one thing. My mechanical torch could hardly flicker now. I could no longer see them in that pitch black, the full moon covered by the thick canopy, only a small moonbeam illuminating the white sphinx at the uppermost part, its eyes and features hidden in a gruesome shadow that made it more Morlock than man. I rushed to my machine and the trap was sprang. One of the brutes touched me in the dark, another pulled at my legs. They surrounded me. I had only to ignore the machine and depart, I told myself. I'd hit some with iron whip. I hit some with my iron bar, but there were now forty or fifty of them crowding around me like a mob. It was a moment of pure horror. I knew I would end up as that Eloy child had so many nights ago, ripped to pieces, eaten like cattle. I could feel them ripping at my coat, ripping at my flesh. Then I made my way into the machine and slammed myself inside the chassis, locking the latch. They banged on the outside, and I laughed myself, laughed at their folly, and I prepared to depart when a scream came out. Dear Wiener, whom I had so assuredly left in a safe room, had ventured out to find me. I felt an instant of shame. I had been the one to chide her into her newfound bravery. It had been my misguided recompense that taught her the survival of all depends on the survival of one. I had, in effect, betrayed her to the Morlocks. I knew instantly that there was no departure without her and I commanded in my heart in that moment that should I survive the night, I would not abandon her to this savage time, but bring her with me to 1895. So I tore my pants at the knee, wrapped them around my rod of iron, doused the thing in oil, and opened the chassis once more. For a moment, the Morlocks believed themselves victors, until the moment I set a flame to the makeshift torch and the entire room beneath the sphinx went red-hot. I wanted to massacre them. The screaming of the monsters. It's a sound I will never forget. I caught some on fire and they fell and burned up in horror. I almost pitied the ones I killed. Hundreds of others darted into alcoves and tunnels, wells and passageways, retreating and outgunned. And Weena screamed once more. What followed then, Henry? to this day, still feels as if it were a nightmare. There were times I was sure I would awake in my laboratory in 1895. I called upon God to let me awaken, but it was all too real. I stumbled into the cabins, following Weena's screams, darker and darker, deeper and deeper, until I came to a large cave. The Morlock were there, and Weena was held by them, but alive. The Morlock parted ways like the Red Sea, until I saw a faint blue light in the center of the room. I entered it and saw, sitting among the calcius stalagmites, their master. A figure that was ghastly like the Morlock, but 
frail like the Eloi, a face like a man resting on rocks, atrophied. He was luminous, hairless, and emotionless. I approached him with a great sense of fear and a knowledge that this thing was the general on the other side of my battlefield. When he communicated to me, it wasn't spoken, as if it were a thought in my mind. It's hard to explain, but I understood him in his silence. I've been watching you for some time. Let her go. She will not be harmed, as long as you don't try to harm me. I will keep my kind under control. Control? What do you mean by control? The Morlock hunger, but they are held at bay by my thought. How? Come now. You're not a man of equations. That much I know. I've been watching you since you arrived. Scientist. You are a man of theory. So, what theory do you propose to explain the abomination before you? You're the outcome of many hard eons. Yes. Good. A descendant of my own kind, just like the Eloi. Yes. But how do you hypothesize that I came to be this monster? The principles of naturalism. Billions of years of misguided evolution. The textbook of Charles Darwin comes to life. But how? Your kind came underground when the world was ending above. Good. You do not disappoint. And? And so you evolved to suit your environment. Some into the Morlocks and others... No, we created no. the Morlocks. We created, created. the Morlocks. They were designed to serve our needs. Designed? You mean bred? Engineered? They were created with one purpose. To work the dangerous machines and build the tunnels to keep us alive in the dark times. A mindless working class. Uh, under the control of... Just me now. You can't possibly imagine those like and your stuff. The suffering of every living thing. We took our species to the precipice of extinction. We the darkness. We became stronger. We survived a brutal world by becoming more brutal than it. But, millennia later, when we tried to emerge into the warmth of the sun again, we couldn't. Our adaptation was too successful. How do you control the Morlocks? We make them see what we wish them to see. How? As our bodies atrophied, as our, bodies our minds compensated. You control them with your mind. I am the master. They are obedient. And what of the Eloi? They survived above. Some survived above. Became what they are. Like animals. No, they didn't. They didn't become your food by nature. You did that. You engineered it as you engineered your slave race. Who are you to question us? I know. I've seen it up close. It's barbaric. You speak of the Eloi as if they're vermin. It's just how we live now. You can't possibly expect me to accept this as... What, necessary? 
I don't care how you accept it, it just is. I have no more human response to the consumption of the Eloy than you would have towards the consumption of livestock. But they aren't livestock. I've been among them. They have minds, and beauty, and dance, and love. They have children, and culture. Have you completely lost your sense of morality? This can't be all there is to mankind. I refuse to believe it. Your refusal to accept the truth makes it no less true. Predator and prey. There is nothing else. There is not even a desire for anything else. Mankind, for all our hopes and dreams, has finally arrived at stasis. In some ways, the Eloy welcome it, which brings us to the problem of you. And what problem is that? You already know. You, like me, have worked out the equation. We are the only ones awake. The Morlock are driven by my will. The Eloy are driven by their... Fear. But you and I have reason. Logic. And yet, we stand contrary to each other. A contradiction that will ultimately war with itself until there is supremacy. Your way of life, your love for the Eloy, simply cannot coexist with our need to survive. Traveler, already I suspect you've tilted the course of the Eloy by bringing them knowledge of your own world. You can see that this threatens the branch. You, of course, mean that it threatens you. Yes, I mean it threatens me. There we do share commonality. I, like you, have a vested interest in my own self-preservation. You understand, of course. You adapted once. You can do it again. A better way. Oh, we all tried our different ways in the dark years. We all tried our There is no better way than this. Balance. You have no place here, Traveler. The past is immutable, frozen, dead, dead. And you are a thing of the past. Frozen, dead, and you are You're free to go. You're just letting me go. I have no indignation for you. But if you choose to stay and spread your ideas, then you threaten our balance. If you refuse this offer, then the Morlock will be on you in a moment. What if I come back? I strongly suspect it'll be easier for you to rationalize this as a waking nightmare before taking another rationalize trip Rationalize this as a waking nightmare. I'll warn them about you. No one will ever believe you. And even if they did, you'd only prolong no the inevitable. This is our ultimate fruition. This is our final function and design. So, what will it be, Traveler? Reinstated liberty in a comfortable world of enlightenment and printed books? Or the confused and needless death of a drifting madman lost in a future he cannot even fully comprehend? What happened then still feels like a dream. I heard the monsters screaming. I saw the glowing red fire in Lena's hand. Dance! She told the Morlocks. She had managed to find another mechanical torch in the museum. They scattered and I heard their master howl. He had planned all outcomes except for the unthinkable. He never once conceived that the Eloy would find their bravery. Run, love! No! 
Seize her! Mina raced towards me, but her handling of the torch was haphazard. She caught warlocks on fire in the dozen, and soon everything became a terrifying conflagration. The monsters howled. Mina came to my side. We must go. That is when the master of the monster race lunged off his pedestal, drawing a clawed hand, striking Mina with a furious howl. Mina screamed, and both fell over. I saw the torch evaporate and roll away. I was immediately surrounded by the Morlock. They ripped at me, pulling me with such strength into the darkness. Weena! One of them sank their teeth into my neck. There it was again. The most mortal feeling of fear as the blood rushed down my back. I saw Weena unmoving. Dark fatalism fell over me. Just as the anteroom began to turn dark, a new flame ignited. Weena had recovered the mechanical torch, pressed it into the face of the master, and ignited the flame into his face. He howled in madness as his head burst into fire. With him, a chorus of howling creatures seemed to share in his pain. He slumped over, dead. Morlock madly scattered free from the master's home. Weena. I rushed to Weena, pushing the dead Morlocks off of her. But I could see immediately. She was beyond saving. I feel no more fear. No, Weena. No. No, please, hold on. I could get you to a hospital, surely. I picked you out. What? You were the right fruit. And I picked you out. Please, just rest. You cannot. You told me. passed away. In my arms, I returned to my machine. But the victory was hollow. My heart was shattered. I activated the machine with my keylock. I pulled the lever so hard that I found that the thousand's hand was sweeping round as fast as the second's hand of a watch. Deep grief overwhelmed my mind. I suppose I, I should have returned to before to save Weena. But in that moment, all I felt was darkness. The words of the master echoed in my mind. Was this the final note in the symphony of mankind? Was there nothing I could do to change that? As I drove on, a peculiar change crept over the appearance of things. The palpitating grayness grew darker. Then, though I was still traveling with prodigious velocity, the blinking succession of day and night returned. Then the world around me turned into a sort of twilight. The light of the sun had long disappeared. All trace of the moon had vanished. The circling of the stars growing slower and slower had given place to creeping points of light. And soon everything grew dark. 
cannot convey the sense of abominable desolation that hung over the cosmos. I continued on in great strides of thousands of years, drawn on by the mystery of the darkness, a strange fascination. At last, more than thirty million years went, and the heavens were dark and still. Beyond the sounds of my machine was lifelessness. It's hard to convey the stillness of it. All the sounds of man, the bleating of sheep, the cries of birds, the hum of insects, the stir that makes the background of our lives, all that was over. I floated in that vast emptiness, thinking of nothing but Weena, till I went into a dark trance and lost all sense of time, all sense of being. I would startle at a flicker of light, only to realize it was a phantasm of the mind. I lost touch with all my senses until I felt as though I were in a state of unconsciousness. I thought of home. I thought of you. I felt cold and alone. What did this endless darkness represent? Was all life gone now? Was I the only floating thing in the universe? I could not tell you how frightened I was. A sort of panic you expect to recede, but one that grips you and never lets go. And I considered, this was it. I would play out the rest of my life in this dark madness. But, in a sudden moment of realization, I knew I could still reverse course. It wasn't too late. I should have sooner, of course. All I can say is... My mind had, to some extent, unraveled, and the thought of reversing my trajectory towards the past simply could not be conjured, until I broke from my dream and pulled the lever all the way in the opposite direction. After some time in darkness, the blinking succession of the days and nights returned. The sun got golden again, the sky blue. I breathed with greater freedom. I found myself returning to sanity. The fluctuating contours of the land ebbed and flowed. The hands spun backward upon the dials. At last I saw again the dim shadows of houses, the evidence of decadent humanity. These two changed and passed, and others came. Presently, when the million dial was at zero, I slackened speed. I began to recognize our own petty and familiar architecture. The thousand's hand ran back to the starting point. The night and day flapped slower and slower. Then the old walls of the laboratory came round me. Very gently now, I slowed the mechanism down. Then I stopped the machine and saw about me again the old familiar laboratory. My tools, my appliances, just as I had left them. I got off the thing very shakily and sat down upon my bench. For several minutes, I trembled violently. Then I became calmer. Around me was my old workshop again, exactly as it had been, as if the whole nightmare of the Morlocks was just that, a nightmare, and the machine was broken, overwhelmed by its trip, no longer able to function. You know the rest. I washed and drank, and now I am telling you the story. I... I see. 
and you say the machine is is broken? I know how it sounds. I cannot expect you to believe it. Take it as another joke if you want, like that childish Christmas ghost. The master of the Morlock was evil, yes, but he had an intellect greater than our own, and he could see almost all ends. He said it. No one would believe me. Not even myself. It, it is a hard story to believe. What is that in your pocket? The flower Weena gave me. I forgot all about it. Most unusual. I'm damned if this isn't all a memory. This room, you, the everyday life of London. Too much the stuff of dreams. Did I even make a time machine? Or is it all a dream? To say life is a dream, a precious, poor dream. But, but where did this dream come from? He arose and left the room. And for a time, I worried over him. I admit there was a peculiarity to the substance and nature of the pedals he handed to me, then abruptly insisted on retaining. I kept a pedal of my own, and took it to a botanist colleague who could not identify it, though told me to consider the many unknown types of flowers in the world. It hardly meant the story was true. For several weeks, the traveller isolated himself. I would pay little visits. He became depressed and closed off. I began to feel unwelcome. There were no more dinner parties, no more theories or debates in his parlour, no more gay laughter amidst our silly little intelligentsia, where once stood a bright young lad so sure of revolution and science and the arc of human progress, now stood a dim creature who sought no friends, no good humour, no endeavour of any kind. Whatever the case may be, it had gone on long enough. I resolved to confront my friend with reason and convince him back to reality. But he was not to be found. I visited his home, and it was shuttered. I visited his laboratory, and he closed it down. I felt I oughtn't go in there without permission. But I was desperate, and I found the entire room, from the walls to the ceiling, empty. All that remained was that peculiar flower. Months passed. The new year came, and on one bleak, cold, and lifeless day, I stood at Lambeth Station, on my way north to home, when I heard a church bell strike eight o'clock in the evening. A curious feeling washed over me, and I remembered it had been months since my last penance at St. Mary's Cathedral. I took the empty train to Richmond. I walked through the lifeless park along the Thames, and there it was, the stone sanctuary. Hymns were being sung. I thought of my place in the story of human history and how uncertain the future felt. I felt such heavy grief, such fear. And I stood there, weeping in the snow. But I was not alone. Are you okay? I beg your pardon. I didn't see you there. It's quite all right. I was just saying a prayer for an old friend. He, he lost his way. I'm sorry to hear that. How has he lost his way? He was a scientist, you see. 
And it is the curse of brilliant men to find themselves confronted with uh, dark conclusions. And now he has vanished like a ghost. It sounds like your friend was troubled. I think he was. He told a story no one believed, you see. And I think he couldn't face it. I feel a great sense of guilt, though. Why guilt? Well, I oughtn't trouble you on this dreary night. You can tell me if you like. Strangers are often the best confidants. You can tell them anything, and they won't recognize your face in a month. (laughs) That's clever. Well, you see, when my friend needed me to listen the most, I didn't believe him. I still don't believe him. I thought he might be a bit mad. Why didn't you believe him? Because what he said was was impossible. But he was so convinced of it. I, I, I don't, I don't know. I truly don't know what to make of it. Piteous old man child, for old age doesn't bring with it wisdom, but rather bewilderment. But you listen. Pardon? You listen to your friend's story. Well, yes. Then you shouldn't feel guilty. Then why does it nag at me so? Maybe because you know his story was the truth. It can't be. If it can't, then you are right to call him mad. In either case, you have no burden to carry anymore. Good night. Miss? I told you, old man. It'll be all the more satisfying when I'm proven right. I stood in the snow, dumbfounded. And he and this mysterious woman vanished in the dark. One cannot help but wonder, will he ever return? My own hope is that his final voyage landed him somewhere happy and together with someone. I hope he lives still, woken to an age of utopia where the burdensome riddles of our existence are answered and its wearisome problems solved. For for my own self, I'm filled with a sense of unease. I cannot think that these days of scientific progress are a good thing. We are fools with weak experiments, fragmented theories, and mutual discord. And this is, indeed, a culminating time for all mankind. The Traveler would agree, I think. We talked about the future long before the machine. We saw a growing pile of civilization, a foolish heaping of deceptive self-assurance, building higher and higher, so high that it must inevitably fall back upon itself and destroy its makers in the end. And if that is to be our future, if he is right about our ultimate destiny, well, then it remains for us to live through it. And so we shall. Time Machine was brought to you by Back Alley Productions. This work exists in the public domain. The production was directed by Christopher Smith. The voice talent for the production include George Taylor as Henry, Bryson Burnett as The Traveler, 
Joel Taylor as Mr. Philby, Dylan Hartley as Rogers, Imogene Scott as Weena, Gavin Russell as The Master, and Kayla Nash as The Eloy. Audio editing was done by Christopher Smith. All sounds and music used in this production are royalty-free and licensed through Endemic Sound. Back Alley Productions is a full-season theater company located at the Mars Theater in Lafayette, Georgia. To learn more about us, including upcoming shows and state productions, visit www.bapshows.com.